We're continuing in the book of Acts, chapter 6, verse 8. Father, this morning we pray that as we open your word, um, we approach it with reverence, Lord, because it testifies of your dear Son. We ask that you would cleanse us this morning, open our hearts and our minds to actually hear uh, what your Spirit would say to the church. We pray that uh, you would filter out what is not of you and what is of you, that you would just pierce our hearts. And we come before you and we thank you for all the good things you've given us and for this testimony of Stephen. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Chapter 6, verse 8, we've covered 1 through 7. Uh, but it says, Now Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, performed great wonders and signs among the people. Wouldn't that be cool? But it says, uh, at, Well, as we mentioned a few weeks ago, the apostles had appointed seven men who were known to be full of the Spirit wisdom to take over to the distribution of the bread to the widows in the church. Remember, there's that problem within the church. There was some, some uh, cultural tension. You had people who spoke Greek and Greek backgrounds. They were Jews. And then you had the Jews from Jerusalem area. And there was this kind of this tension. It seemed like people were not uh, loving one another. And there was favoritism going on. And so the apostles, they say, hey, disciples, why don't you all choose seven men among you who are full of the Holy Spirit wisdom? Send them my way. And what's going to happen after that is we'll lay hands on them, anoint them, and put, make them as deacons in the church. And basically this became the first deacon board, so to speak, or deacon group. The word deacon simply means servant. It means servant. And you can read about the qualifications for serving uh, that Paul gave to Titus and Timothy later on in those books addressed to them. But Stephen is listed here first in verse 5 and is pointed out as a man who is full of faith in the Holy Spirit. And the six other words were as well, but the emphasis is on Stephen because of, where, of what we're about to read today. And God is looking for men and women to serve him who are filled with the Holy Spirit. It is the prerequisite for service in the church. That's the qualification for serving in the church, to be born again and to be filled with his spirit. Now, Stephen's, uh, now Stephen, just a guy, right? Just a guy who's overseeing the bread ministry is full of God's grace and his power, and he's doing signs and wonders among the people. And it says in verse 8, as he did this, well, uh, I'm sorry, it says in verse 9, it says, Opposition arose, however, from members of the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as it was the province of Cilicia and Asia, who began to argue with Stephen. One of the signs that you're operating in the Spirit, in the grace of God, is that there's going to be spiritual warfare. There will be spiritual warfare when you are called by God to go out and to minister to people. When you step into speaking to your neighbor, when you step out and serve in the children's ministry, when you step out and say hello to that person at Walmart, expect the enemy to not like that. Expect there to be resistance. Expect there to be this spiritual warfare from this unseen world that we do not see, but which is real and is ruled by the enemy of our souls. And this happens, and, he, and there's this group of Jews from Cilicia and Alexandria. They're most likely Hellenistic Jews. They had a Greek background. They were full Jewish, but they had this Greek background. And this, coupled with the fact that Stephen was also from that background, says that Stephen started his ministry, widis, wid, uh, ministering to those widows, and he naturally went out and continued it to his own people. 
So he's out there preaching in this one synagogue, and this group of people from Cilicia, Alexandria, that all gathered in this synagogue got upset. They started to argue with him. They started to debate with him. And if you've ever seen Middle Easterners debate, it's pretty interesting. You're, no, no, no one's laughing. I mean, it gets, it gets tense. Thank you. <laughs> he's been there, right? <laughs> So it appears that Stephen, he's filled with the Spirit. He starts ministering to the widows of the church, and then naturally it flows out from there. And the Hellenistic Jews from this group, they were opposing Stephen and began to argue with him. Many believe, everybody, that, that Saul, who had become Paul, was part of this group that was debating with Stephen because Paul was from Troas, and, he was, and that's from Sicilia. And so Paul's most likely in this group. And he's probably one of the ones debating here with Stephen. That's, that's not in Scripture, but a lot of people believe that these things are adding up. And we know Paul has an amazing mind. He was an amazing debater. And so, but what's interesting, it says Stephen's making waves with these guys. He's witnessing to them. He's preaching the gospel, and he's getting resistance. And so what, is, what happens to this group that he's ministering to, verse 10, it says, but they cannot stand up against the wisdom that the Spirit gave him as he spoke. And I could just see Paul in his amazing mind, in his zealousy, arguing with Stephen and, you know, men like him. And they just, even though they might have had all the facts and tried to hit the words, there was just something in their hearts that could not overcome the truth that was being set before them. As we're going to see Stephen recall their own national history to them in proof that the Messiah was actually Jesus. And the source of Stephen's ability to do this came from the Holy Spirit within him. You know, so often we rely upon our education, we rely upon our wisdom, my ability to communicate, the words I use, the vernacular, and all these this great stuff, you know? And truly, it's the Spirit of God within the heart of a broken vessel that is the power. What, is it, what did Paul say? He said the power in Romans 1.17, the power is in the gospel to save. The power is in the gospel. It's in the message. It's in the Holy Spirit, the, the, the thing that God desires to convey. And he uses all types of people. He uses people in the distribution of the bread ministry to turn the world upside down for Jesus and I love that about the Lord, that he can take a guy from San Marcos that was nothing, still am nothing, and he can take me and use me all over the world to do things and bring me up to Walla Walla to share his word. Nothing special, but the Lord, he's so good. He takes broken people who just say, Lord, forgive me and use me. Remember this when you're challenged, when you share the gospel. Rely upon the Holy Spirit. And verse 11 says that they were secretly, this group, they secretly persuaded some men to say, we have heard Stephen speaking blasphemous words against Moses and against God. And so they stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law. And they seized Stephen and brought him before the Sanhedrin. Sanhedrin, that Jewish group of leaders that are brought together, the same ones that put Jesus to death, the same ones that just whipped John and, and uh, Peter, Right? They produced false witnesses who testified. This is what they said. This fellow never stopped speaking against this holy place and against the law. For we have heard him say that Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs of Moses handed down to us. And so these religious guys, 
these churched people, so to speak, uh, they secretly coached false witnesses to testify against Stephen, uh, just as they did with Jesus a short time earlier. And the accusations were that Stephen spoke blasphemies against Moses and God. I did not know you could speak blasphemies against Moses, Uh, you know, but uh, obviously you could here. They really elevated Moses. And I don't think, you know, you can speak blasphemies against Moses, but hey, that was the charge. And they also said Stephen was calling for the destruction of the temple and changing of the customs handed down by Moses. You know, these are some big ass accusations because it's messing with God, messing with Moses, messing with the law, messing with the temple. You just don't do that. I mean, those are fighting words in Jewish custom. You walk in and start talking bad about Moses. You start talking bad about the law of the temple. You just are going to die. I mean, that's just the way it works in, in that <clears throat> setting at that time. And obviously, there's some misunderstandings with what Stephen is teaching. Stephen was not against the law. He was not against the temple. He wasn't against these things. But he was bringing the revelation of what Jesus had accomplished and what, would he, what he would do. And so they took what he had said, what they taught, and twisted his words. And that will happen as you, as you go out and minister to people, and the enemy gets in there and twists things. False witnesses will rise up sometimes, to, from time to time. If they can't get you right on, the, the enemy will come in and he will uh, set up false witnesses and character assassination and all these things that go about. And that's what they're trying to do to Stephen here, to discount his credibility when obviously he's the real deal. But something I noticed, what, what is your countenance when you're falsely accused of things? Anybody been falsely accused of things? Husbands, wives, kids? No, no. Anybody been falsely accused of anything? What's your countenance? Yeah, just, you know, I'm going to, that's not, look at verse 15. And all were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen, and they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. This didn't mean he had baby face, you know. He didn't have a facial or anything like that. was looking all good. This means that he was radiating. He was reflecting the glory of God. He had been spending time with the Lord. He was filled with the Holy Spirit. It just flowed from his innermost being. You know what I love about this? Is there was another person in Scripture whose face glowed. The very one that they're accusing of him betraying. Remember Moses? He had been spending time in the presence of God, receiving the law, and his face shone the glory of God. It radiated from his being, and he came down off the mountain. They had to put a veil over his face because people were just freaking out. And this is a picture, even though it's, it's a figure of speech saying, man, look, he was just glowing. It did not face him no matter what they said because God was in him and working through him. I tell you, we, we often reflect what we've been around, what we're feasting upon, what we're basking in. We reflect that. What's in our heart usually comes out our mouth or is in our demeanor and our facial expressions and all these things. And, and you see Stephen, he's, he's filled with the Spirit. He's filled with the Lord's love. He knows his God. He knows what he's talking about. He's confident. He's not cocky. He's just, it's shining through his innermost being. He's glowing. Some of us really need that. Some of us more than others, me included. We need to bask in his glory. We need to bask in his presence and let him just change us from the inside out as we worship him, as we wait upon him, 
as we let him soften our hearts and fill us once again with his love. I remember my early 20s when I first kind of came back to the Lord. Uh, and the people I used to hang out with, I remember seeing them again. They go, man, what? There's something different about you. You just look totally different. You're, you know, what's going on? And I was able to share the Lord. I said, Jesus is in my life. And it was noticed in my actions, the way I talked. It was noticed in, in just my demeanor. I mean, people would just see this joy overflow from my life. Commenting on my countenance, something had changed. It's because I was no longer walking in darkness. I was walking in light, and the light was in me, and it was shining. And that's what the Lord desires for us, for his kids. And so false ac- accusations have been made against Stephen, and it's brought, he's brought before the Sanhedrin, the Jewish leaders, and all for intents and purposes, this is a religious trial. Remember, there's no separation of church and state here. This is the leadership. Um, some say that at this time, uh, the Roman governor, there was some, you know, Pontius Pilate had gone away, and there's some disruption. And so there was this uh, ability to be able to execute people, as we will see. But uh, regardless, there's this religious um, trial going on, and the high priest is officiating, and he speaks to Stephen in chapter 7, verse 1, says, are these charges true? Now, Stephen is not really going to defend himself. I would be like, oh, you know, and I'd just start shooting bullets at everybody, wouldn't you? I mean, like, what are you talking? That's, you know, what are you doing? But he's not really going to do that. He's going to stay on point. He's, He's not there to defend himself. He's there to preach the gospel and to actually be a messenger of the Lord. So he capitalized on it. And and rather than defending himself, he flips it around and uses this and builds a case that, in fact, they were the ones who abandoned abandoned Moses, who abandoned the law, who despised the temple. And he flips around and says, hey, listen, this is your history. This is what you guys are all about, what we are as Jews. Don't sit there and, and, and it's not about me. This is really what's going on in your hearts. And you're standing there pontificating that I have done something that actually, your hearts are hard, and he'll talk about this. And so, filled with the Holy Spirit, now Stephen is going to give these guys a history lesson. You're talking to the leaders of Israel. They know the laws back and forth. They know their own history. They pride themselves in it. You know, it's like some of you sports fanatics. You know everything about every single person on the team you know their history, what they've done, what their abilities are, their stats, what they did at, at you know, camp and all this stuff. You know it. Well, this is kind of their thing. This is their thing. So you're telling them what they, what they already know, and he's going to start doing that. And so this is an amazing reply. Uh, verse 2. To this he replied, you know, is it true? His brothers and fathers, listen to me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham while he was still in Mesopotamia, back in Iraq, before he lived in Haran. He said, leave your country and your people, God said, and go to the land that I will show you. Everybody who is with me in in Genesis as we went through, we remember this story. Verse 4, and so he left the land of the Chaldeans and settled in Haran. And after the death of his father, God sent him to the land where you are now living, right where we're all standing. And he gave him no inheritance, not even enough ground to set his foot on, but God promised him that he and his descendants after him, that's all us, would possess the land even though at the time Abraham had no child. And God spoke to him in this way. For, for 400 years your descendants will be strangers in a country, uh, not their own, and they will be enslaved and mistreated, but I will punish the nation they serve as slaves. And God said, 
And afterward, they will come out of the country and worship me in this place. And then he gave Abraham the covenant of circumcision, and Abraham became the father of Isaac uh, and circumcised him on the eighth day after his birth. And later Isaac became the father of Jacob, and Jacob became the father of the 12 patriarchs. And so he's just running down the history. And he, he's going to get to points here in just a second, but he starts with where it all began. He hits Abraham, and he starts working his way down through history. They're all tracking with him. They're tracking, they're tracking. And now you want to pay close attention because now he's going to build some patterns. He's going to actually get to a point like I will eventually. The Holy Spirit starting to weave some patterns here. Verse 9 says, Because the patriarchs were jealous of Joseph. Remember, Joseph had brothers. Those brothers were jealous of Joseph. And what did they do? They sold him as a slave into Egypt. They wanted to kill him, but they sold him as a slave. But God was with him, verse 10, and rescued him from all his troubles. And he gave Joseph wisdom and enabled him to gain the goodwill of of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And so Pharaoh made him ruler over Egypt and all his place. Verse 11, Then a famine struck all Egypt and Canaan, bringing great suffering. And our ancestors could not find food. When Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent our forefathers, his sons, the brothers of Joseph, on their visit. And on their second visit, Joseph told his brothers who he was. And Pharaoh learned about Joseph's family. And after this, Joseph sent for his father and Jacob and his whole family, 75 in all. And Jacob went down to Egypt uh, where he and our ancestors died. Their bodies were brought back to Shechem and the placed in the tomb. Abraham had brought, uh, bought from the sons of Hamar at Shechem for a certain sum of money. Now the pattern and the point that the Holy Spirit is weaving here is that the leaders of Israel, uh, uh, they have had a long history of rejecting those that God had sent. They always reject him the first time. But the second time, they accept him. And this is the pattern he's going to go. God keeps sending you people after people and people. And the first time you reject them, the second time you accept them. The first time you acknowledge them, you don't recognize them. The second time you do recognize them. And so Stephen's using their own history to shape what is actually happening right now in modern time. Amazing message. And so... He's going to show this pattern now. Uh, uh, he'll show this pattern with Joseph, and he shows the pattern with Moses. And Joseph's brothers did not res- recognize Joseph the first time, right? When he, they went back to the land, they didn't recognize him, but it was the second time they went back that he showed himself, and they finally woke up to the fact that's who he was. John chapter 1, verses 9 through 11, it says in chapter, uh, I'm sorry, John chapter 1, verse 9, it says, the true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. He came to his own, but they did not receive him. They did not recognize this. John chapter 1, verses 9 through 11, for those of you who are taking notes. And this is what Stephen is illustrating by the retelling of their own history and is ultimately pointing to the Messiah whom they rejected. And the nation of Israel did not accept Jesus the first time, but the Lord will reveal himself to them at his second coming. And just as in the days of Joseph, what does the book of Revelation teach us? Is just in the days of Joseph, there's the great famine then, there'll be great tribulation in the future. 
and that will drive the people uh, to the Lord, and they will recognize him for who he is, and 144,000 will be anointed, and there will be a great revival the second time. And uh, it, it's kind of interesting on the timing there, but it's, it's pretty amazing how this, this pattern happens. They didn't recognize Jesus the first time, they recognized him the second. And I find it interesting that between the first coming of Jesus and the second coming of Jesus, between the first and second appearance of Joseph, that who was it that accepted Joseph? It was the Gentiles. Who is it that accepts Jesus now that the Jews have rejected the Messiah? The Gentiles. And so there's this, the Holy Spirit's weaving these things through. And as the time, verse 17, as the time drew near for God to fulfill his promise to Abraham, the number of our people in Egypt had greatly increased. Then a new king to whom Joseph meant nothing came to power, and he dealt treacherously with our people and oppressed our ancestors by forcing them to throw out their newborn babies so that they would die. We see this repeated again at the birth of Jesus, right? With Herod. Verse 20 says, at that time Moses was born, and he was no ordinary child. For three months he was cared for by his family. He was a Jew, right? A Hebrew. And when he was placed outside, that is, in the, in the little uh, basket, and put on the Nile River, and floated across, what happened? Pharaoh's daughter took him and brought him up as her own. Moses was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was powerful in speech and action. So now he's going from Joseph, he's going to Moses. Verse 23, when Moses was 40 years old, he decided to visit his own people, the Israelites. He saw one of them being mistreated by an Egyptian. And so he went to his defense and avenged him by killing the Egyptian. What happened in verse 25? And Moses thought that his own people would realize that God was using him to rescue them. But... What happened? They did not. The next day Moses came upon two Israelites who were fighting and he tried to reconcile them by saying, Men, you are brothers. Why do you want to hurt each other? But the man who was ministering, I'm sorry, who was mistreating the other people pushed Moses aside and said, Who made you ruler and judge over us? They rejected him as the ruler and the judge that God actually did, did sin. Are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptians yesterday? Verse 29, when Moses heard this, he fled to Midian, where he settled as a foreigner. Where did he go? Out to Midian, outside of the land, back to the Gentiles. He had two sons, and after 40 years had passed, an angel, angel appeared to Moses in flames of the burning bush in the desert near Mount Sinai. And when he saw this, he was amazed at the sight. And he went over to get a closer look, and he heard the Lord say, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Moses trembled with fear and did not dare to look. And then the Lord said to him, Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. And I have indeed seen the oppression of my people in Egypt, and I have heard their groaning and have come down to set them free. Now come, I will send you back to Egypt. Second time. What happens the second time? So Israel rejected God and they're appointed to deliver the first time. Second time, they accept him. Verse 35 says, this is the same Moses. They have rejected with, uh, sorry, with, with the words, who made you ruler and judge. And he was sent to be the ruler and deliver, the, uh, deliver by God himself through the angel who appeared to them in the bush. And he led them out of Egypt and performed wonders and signs in Egypt at the Red Sea 
and for 40 years in the wilderness. You rejected him the first time, this Moses that you claim me to reject. But you, well, you accepted him the second time. And, he, and then in verse 37, it's very important. It says, this is the Moses who told the Israelites, God will raise, you, raise up for you a prophet like me from your own people. Moses is speaking to the Israelites, everybody, and he says, hey, God's going to raise up a prophet just like me. What does that mean, just like me? Well, he's going to be accept, rejected the first time, accepted the second time. He was sent to deliver but you rejected him. And Jesus would weep. Jesus would stand over the city and say, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I long to gather you to myself, but you would not have me. You rejected me. And so that's that prophet, the one they're talking, he's talking about the Messiah. They'd be just like him, a deliverer. And verse 38 says, and he, Moses, was in the assembly in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai and with our ancestors, and he received the living words, the law, right, to pass on to us. So now Stephen's switching gears. He's gone from God to Moses, I mean, God to Joseph to Moses and, and showing the pattern there. Now he's switching to the law. You guys talk about the law, that you accept the law, and that you're saying that we've rejected the law. And he's going on to say, well, let me tell you a little bit about our history as a people, about you and your kind. The religious leaders held the law of Moses in high regard and accused Stephen of teaching that Jesus had changed the customs when in actuality Jesus fulfilled the law. So now he's going to point out that relationship between Israel's, uh, between Israel's heart and, and the law here. And we read in verse 38 again, it says, And he was in the assembly in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai and with our ancestors. And he received these living words, Moses, and passed it on to us. Verse 39, But our ancestors refused to obey him. Instead, they rejected him. And in their hearts, they turned back to Egypt. They told Aaron, Hey, make us gods who will go, go before us. And it's for this fellow Moses who led us out of Egypt. We don't know what has happened to him. That was the time they made an idol in the form of the calf. Moses, I mean, Stephen had to say, yeah, that was the time, remember, because there were a lot of them. <laughs> there were a lot. And Stephen is alluding to that. And they brought sacrifices to it, this golden calf, and, they, and revealed in what their own hands had made, and reveled, sorry, in the, what their own hands had made. But God turned away from them and gave them over to the worship of the sun, the moons, and the, and the stars. They began to worship creation rather than the creator. And this agrees, he writes, with what is written in the book of the prophets, and he quotes Amos chapter 5.25, Do you bring sacrifices and offerings 40 years in the wilderness, people of Israel? You have taken up the tabernacle of Molech and the star of your god Rephan, the idols you made to worship, and therefore I will exile you beyond Babylon. They, wor- they begin to worship these gods associated with the zodiac. They began to seek them instead of the living and true God. And one of these gods, Molech, was, was hideous and horrible, and they would create him, and he'd have these hands that are out like this. And they put him in a fire, and this god, it would be the altar, and he would get glowing hot, and they'd take their newborn infants and place them upon him, and they'd sizzle and die. That's the hard hardest, and we look at that, 
we go, oh, how could these people, how could these godly people ever turn away? And we look at our nation, and we've got 60 million abortions in the last 40 years, all on the God, the altar of pleasure, all on the altar of self. This is what happens. Our conscience becomes seared, Romans said. Their conscience became seared. They no longer recognized evil. They were unable to. So now Stephen is bringing all this up, and he's using Scripture to do it. They rejected. I mean, this is what the nation of Israel did in regards to the law, and he's pointing this out. They rejected Moses and the law for false gods, and they worshiped in the temple of their gods. Notice it says that. And you worship in the temple of your gods. They re- and now he's transitioning to the temple. He talked about the law. You guys disobey the law. What about the temple? You went to go worship at false gods' temples. That's our history. That is what the pattern is. And now he's going to address that in, in, in closing here. And so Stephen, in verse 44 it says, our ancestors had the tabernacle of the covenant law with them in the wilderness. Remember, it was the mobile temple. They're kind of like in a mobile temple. It had been made as God directed Moses according to the pattern he had seen. And after receiving the tabernacle, our ancestors under Joshua, the leader after Moses, brought it with them when they took it to the land from the nations God had drove out before them. It remained in the land until the time of David, who enjoyed God's favor and asked that he might provide a dwelling place for, God, for the God of Jacob. God, you know, we've been mobile, but we're here now in the land. You've given us this land. We'd like to build a house for you. I'd like to build a house for you. But it was Solomon who, who built it. God would not allow David because David had blood on his hands. He was a man of war. And that's not who's going to be building God's house. That's not how God's house is built. It's not built with a sword. But it was Solomon who built a house for him, his son. However, the Most High God, and now he, he reminds them of this very important place. You've got to see this. When you walk into Jerusalem, you see the Dome of the Rock, you know, the, the, the mosque that's, that's there. Imagine instead of that, a temple that was higher and wider, and it's just made out of pure gold, and it just shines like the sun. You come over the city, and it just... And everybody just would marvel. And, and it was just the center of their cultural life. It represented what they believed and what they thought. And they had taken that building and, had, and elevated it to a place that God never designed for it. Does anybody, do we ever do that with things? Do we ever do that with, don't touch my car, you know, or whatever it is, you know, or whatever it is. Especially religious things, you know, we can get really hunkered down about change or moving things. And it happens. Did God let him do it? Yeah. Was God's presence there? Sure, at times. Yeah. But he points out here in verse 48, however, the most high God does not live in houses made by human hands. You can't put this guy in a bottle. You can't contain him in a building made by human hands. That temple was a representation, the tabernacle was a representation of the spiritual reality, the spiritual heaven. And here they are, focused on the law, the material, what's going on now, when these things were reflecting Christ, they were reflecting the glory of God. And he says, hey, God doesn't live. He's quoting scripture, their own scriptures. 
and houses made by human hands. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Where will my resting place be? Has not my hand made all these things? How big and how awesome God is. And you as religious leaders above all people should know this. And you're treating this place as if it is where God resides when he cannot be contained. Can God be contained in this place? And this is what Stephen's saying. Can God be contained in this place? Do you even know the one you zealously are defending here? Do you even know him? Do you know his heart, what he's like? That's what Stephen's getting at. And now Stephen concludes his sermon with the application. Verse 51, you stiff-necked people. Your hearts and ears are still uncircumcised. You're just like your ancestors. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your ancestors did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you have betrayed and murdered him. You have now received the law that was given through the angels, but you have not obeyed it. Wow. So Stephen just pointed out verse after verse that the leaders as a nation, they had a history of rejecting God while claiming to be God's and that nothing has changed. They were guilty of the same, and he calls them stiff-necked. That means unwilling to yield to God. You just set your ways. And their hearts were still uncircumcised. Their hearts and their ears were uncircumcised. Circumcision was the sign of the covenant that they were God's. He's saying, no, in reality, you're not that way. Your heart is hard towards God. You close your ears when God speaks. You don't listen to him, is what he's saying to these guys. It's the pattern. That's who you are. Stephen saying, you're, you're hypocrites. It's all about appearances. Your heart's hard towards God. You won't listen when he speaks to you. You know, you do all the religious stuff. You got the clothes on. You're doing all the things. But you know what? When God talks to you, you, you shut it down. You resist. Over and over. And God, over and over, is speaking to them. And this is what it's all pointing to is that they resist the Spirit. They resist the Spirit. And so it was the Spirit who sent Joseph to deliver his people to be a blessing. It was the Holy Spirit who did that. It was the Spirit who sent Moses to deliver. It was the Spirit who sent the prophets to speak deliverance and repentance, right? It was the Spirit who sent Jesus, whom Moses, the law, and the prophets all before him were pointing to. The deliverer. And they rejected him, they murdered him, they killed him. And God, over and over in his love and his mercy, sent his servants and ultimately his son to deliver his chosen people from the bondage of sin. But they would not listen. They loved darkness rather than light, John tells us. And Jesus gave a parable in closing that sums up exactly what Stephen preached. In Luke chapter 20, verses 9 through 19, it says, A man planted a vineyard and let it out to the tenants, and went into another country for a long time. And when the time came, his, uh, he sent a servant to the tenants so that he would, I'm sorry, so they would give him some fruit from the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent another servant, but they also beat him and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. 
And he sent yet a third. And this one also they wounded and cast it out. And then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I'll send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. And that's the heart of the enemy. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? Jesus asks this group. He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. And when they heard this, they said, Surely not. But he looked directly at them and said, What then is this that is written? The stone that the builder rejects has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on the stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush them. Jesus was that cornerstone. If we fall upon him, we're broken, but we'll be crushed if we don't. And that's what Jesus came to proclaim. Come, fall upon me, lose your life that you might live. If you don't, he's coming back the second time. Verse 54 says, when the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at Stephen, right? But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, he looked up into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven opening and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Every other time in Scripture, I believe Jesus is is, uh, spoken of as seated at the right hand of the Father, but we see him standing to receive Stephen. That's a beautiful picture. Verse 57, and at this, they covered their ears, and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him. They dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. Notice the contrast between Stephen and these men. Stephen had a face of an angel. These guys were gnashing their teeth. Stephen had his eyes fixed upon heaven. These men had their hearts I'm sorry, had their ears plugged and they were yelling as loudly as they could. They were filled with vengeance. And as we'll read, Stephen is filled with forgiveness and mercy. Then a little side note at the end of verse 58. They dragged Stephen out of the city and began to stone him. It says, meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. I believe if you were a witness... And, uh, and they were sentenced to death in this trial uh, that you had to throw the first stone. And most likely these were guys from Paul's synagogue, his church, and they were laying their coats at the feet of him. And Paul stood there, or Saul at that time, stood and looked on in approval, was part of that group that said, he needs to die. He was one of the ones gnashing his teeth. He was one of the ones plugging his ears. He was one of the ones who was looking at Stephen said, you are going to die. He was zealous for God, but he did not know God. Verse 59, while they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit, just like Jesus prayed, right? And then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. And this was the first martyr of the church. 
And just like Jesus asked that God would have mercy upon those who killed him, same, Stephen did the same. You know, Romans 5.8 says, uh, and this is Paul writing, that God demonstrated his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This was Stephen's message, that God desired to deliver stiff-necked people from sin and death. And he sent messenger after messenger after messenger after messenger after messenger after messenger, and they killed them all, including his own son. God desires to forgive and to give eternal life to anyone who would turn towards him, even to those who rally against him or even say he doesn't exist. He pursues them. He's demonstrated his love towards them in providing that forgiveness of sins through Jesus. Jesus took the wrath that they could be forgiven. And the message of the gospel is repent, turn, and turn towards God. Receive the forgiveness of sins, eternal life, and the Holy Spirit. Come away from darkness, step into the light, turn your heart towards God. Jesus died to make peace between each and every person. Jesus is proof of God's love and that is God's heart. But this passage also addresses the rejection of that love. The rejection of God's love. The rejection of the Spirit of God calling out to mankind. So I have to exhort the church today as we are here if God has been sending messengers to you. Today, perhaps, as you're reading this, if he's been trying to address areas in your life and my life, recognize that God is trying to deliver you. He is seeking to bring you freedom. That is what his heart is, is to free you. Don't be stiff-necked, but rather turn to embrace the Lord. Say, thank you, Lord. Help. Perhaps you've never purposed in your heart to turn from your sins and to trust Jesus to save you. Perhaps you're like these guys. You've been going to church your, your whole life. You've churched it up. You know all the things. You know, and there's been messengers. Perhaps you were young and you said, nope, and God sent 500 since then. The Lord's still inviting you to be delivered from sin and death and to receive the forgiveness of all your wrongs and to have eternal life. Don't resist the Spirit. Give your heart to the Lord right now. Turn from your old life and turn towards God and receive new life. Become baptized and begin to follow Jesus. As you learn what it means to be a son or a daughter of the living God, you can be born again. And this is what Jesus talked about, to become born again. Who is he talking to? He's talking to Nicodemus, a religious leader at night said in order to enter the kingdom of heaven you must be born again God's got to change your spirit and that comes when we surrender our hearts to life we respond to the free gift of salvation given by Jesus Christ and say yes it is us turning from the things that we used to do and to be and turning towards the new life in Christ not grieving the Holy Spirit if you need help if you want to pray with me after service, I'm there. Fred's here. Other people are here to pray for you left or right. It's okay. Don't keep it inside. It's time to come out in the light. And lastly, I want to encourage you. Saul would soon, 
after this go on persecuting on a rampage and start killing Christians and throwing them into jail. And Jesus would knock him off his donkey and his life would be turned upside down and he would write the New Testament, most of the New Testament, and experience extreme physical persecution for the very one he set out to destroy as a young man. He'd be so changed that he would even endure such hostility and such pain in his own life and as a body because he was changed from the inside out. Church, never give up. Never give up on the Saul's in your life. Never give up on that husband, on that child, on that relative. Never give up. Never stop praying. Continue to seek him. God desires to deliver even the chief of sinners, as Paul would call himself. Be a Stephen. Preach the word. You might be dead and gone, but the word of God will continue on, and Jesus is faithful with his word. They might be holding the cloaks of the men who are about to stone you, but leave that up to the Lord. You be filled with the Spirit as you bask in the presence of the Lord. God's calling us to be Stevens. God's calling us to be servants. You know how many times the word leadership is mentioned in the New Testament? And it's both about the blind leading the blind. Servanthood. Jesus did not come to be served, but to serve. To humble ourselves, to break ourselves and say, Lord, break me, fill me, use me. I'm your servant. How can I serve you today? Lord, lead me in that path. And as he puts it on your heart, as there's an opportunity, you step out in faith. But never, church, never stop basking in the glory of the Lord. Never. He is the vine. We are the branches. The fruit comes as we abide in him. And you'll have much fruit in your life. Ministry is not getting stuff done for God. It is God in a relationship with people and his heart flowing out from us. So pray it up. There's a world that needs the Lord Jesus and he wants to use you this week. And you might get rocked. You're in good company and you've got a church around you who loves you and pray for you. I text the guys all the time, say, hey, I'm going to meet with this person, pray. We, we are a family. Don't go Lone Ranger, amen? Let's pray. Lord, we ask today that um, in light of this, we wouldn't be a stiff-necked, hard-hearted people, thoroughly entrenched in tradition, which is something we all have. We pray that it would be in its proper place. Lord, soften our hearts in areas that we need softening. We pray that if we've been stiff-necked, Lord, that you would give us the grace to loosen up. And we pray for those who are struggling in different areas this morning that you've asked um, for them to surrender to you and to come clean or whatever it might be. And we pray that you would soften their hearts, our hearts, my heart, and that you would once again uh, just empower us with your Holy Spirit, cleanse us from our sin, and set us on that tight path with Jesus, Lord. 
Help us not to walk on the wide and broad road when we've been redeemed with the blood of Jesus. We praise you and we lift up this week. We pray that it would be fruitful and bring you glory. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.